Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Today's episode is a continuation of my interview with Canadian retirement expert, Kyle Prevo. And in this episode, you're going to learn how to deal with the volatility of the stock market once you are financially independent and are living off your investments. There are many schools of thought and structures when it comes to dealing with this particular challenge here in Canada. And so Kyle takes us through his research on the top recommended and respected structures that he has uncovered in his research for us Canadians. We also go through Kyle's research on the optimum location for the fixed income portion of your portfolio. Now, traditionally, the advice has been to keep fixed income like bonds in our RRSP, but does that still apply considering the higher interest rate environment that we are now in here in Canada? And what about GICs and how do they fit into all this? Should we be maybe using those instead? So we cover all of that and much more in the episode. And last but not least, after taking into account all the research that he's done on investing, and financial planning for over a decade, Kyle shares what type of investments he buys for his own investment portfolio and what accounts he puts his own investments in for the greatest tax savings and efficiency. Now, in case you missed last month's episode and aren't familiar with who Kyle Prevo is, he is the founder of the Canadian Financial Summit, and he and I have actually co-hosted this summit together for two years. He is also a longtime personal finance columnist. You've probably seen a lot of his work over at Money Sense, and he's been in the National Post, CBC News, The Globe and Mail, and many, many others. And most recently, he's also the creator of Four Steps to a Worry-Free Retirement, the first online course for Canadian retirement planning. He has over a decade and a half of experience at this point when it comes to teaching personal finance. And I was actually part of the test group for his four steps to a worry-free retirement course. And I can personally say that it's really, really good. He's not paying me to promote it or anything like that. I just think that he's built an incredibly valuable resource specifically for Canadians. And I want to help him out in whatever way I can, as it's something that I wish I had when I hit my financial independence number. And it's something that I desperately want my parents to go through as they enter their retirement as well. So I hope you check it out and give him your support. And the link to check it out is over at Build Wealth Canada. .ca slash Kyle, and that will just redirect you to his page. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash Kyle, K-Y-L-E. And now let's get into the episode. I know right now you're financially independent as well, and you have businesses that you own as well on top of that. But let's say you or your wife had a health issue, or you just got burnt out or something where you're like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to I'm just literally not going to work at all anymore. Let's, let's say for health reasons or whatever the case may be. If that was the situation that you were put in, how would you apply the 4% rule or variable draw strategies, anything at all to your own portfolio right now based on everything that you've learned and that you've analyzed? So in that situation, I would probably, I would probably feel comfortable with drawing 4%, exactly 4% plus inflation Mm -hmm. going forward. I guess my, my rationale would end up being, in fact, to be honest, I might even, if, if it were, if it were my wife's health, I would be actually comfortable going much higher than that because in the worst case scenario, I'm thinking I will have not any problem, uh, making this money up in the future. If I want to go back to work as a young, very young, early financially independent person, to me, again, the opportunity cost then of spending time with my wife would be, uh, far outweigh. I don't know. I'd have to think about it if it were the other way, if it were my own health and obviously have a lot of conversations, weird and sad conversations with my wife going back in the other direction in terms of making sure she felt equally as comfortable. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm that confident in the 4% rule that it, that it would be fine. And I actually, now that I think about it, I would probably actually even just draw out like a quick graphic organizer for my wife in terms of like, Hey, this is the portfolio. This is how this works. And, uh, and she would be totally fine to do the mechanics of that. So, and then with the 4% rule, it's trying to protect you against these worst case scenarios. So let's say you did what you just said with your own portfolio. Let's pretend you and your wife are not dying. Maybe like you're just, you're just yeah. burnt out. And so you're still sure. going to live. You're still going to be living. We won't go that. <laughs> sure. Sure. I hear you. <laughs> no, but these are, these are like fears that real people have, right? Yeah, and also sure. I try my best when I was researching this stuff to be like, okay, 
Let's go there. Let's let's not ignore the elephant in the room. Sure. Let's go to the worst place uh, and, yeah. and actually plan for it so you can feel 100% confident. Mm -hmm. But I hear what you're saying. There's it's far more likely you're going to hit one of these in between than the worst, worst, worst case. So. Yeah, yeah. Or you know, you're a business owner, all of a sudden something shifts, the business starts failing, sure. you're getting burnt out, you don't want to do it anymore. You're like, hey, you. I'm, I'm already fine. I don't need to be doing this anymore. You know what I mean? And so you're kind of like, hey, what if I just wasn't generating any income at all? But yeah, you said the 4% rule kind of in that case. Yep. How would you reconcile the fact that, okay, assuming you did not get unlucky and you got just these average market returns and so you get past those dan more dangerous sequence of returns risk years yep. and so now you're let's say you're in the clear and then now you realize okay my portfolio if i keep just spending four percent i'm on the track now where my portfolio will be just enormous by the time that i'm yep. 80 let's say right because again just for everybody listening with the four percent rule it's not trying to optimize your wealth as much as it can instead it's just saying how can how much should we withdraw so we don't run out of money, right? So it's optimizing for that. But like you said in your one of your previous answers, the more likely scenario is that you'll actually end up with more money, assuming you don't get very unlucky. So how would you account for that? Like, would you reevaluate and go move to like a variable strategy five years later, ten years later, fifteen years later? Once yeah. you kind of felt okay, if I'm just keep doing the status quo, the four percent rule, I'm just gonna have be giving away an insane amount of money, and I would rather maybe donate to those charities now and spend all that money with my sure. family now. How would you work through that in your brain? You know, that's actually, that's a, that's one of the big questions I have for Karsten that I'm going to ask him because okay. there actually isn't as much research. There's hardly any research on that, Cornell. People tend to focus on the worst case because it's it makes sense, right? Like that's a great, the situation you're describing is a great problem to have. I quit working. I quit doing anything I got paid for at a, at a very young age. And 15 or 20 years down the road, I've been taking out 4% plus inflation. And let's say my portfolio has doubled or 1.5 in real terms, not nominal terms. That's a, that's a really fun situation to be in, right? And so the question that you're, I think you're actually asking there is how do we maximize our utility at yes. that point in our life? And that's with, without then dipping into a, oh, darn, if I, if the great, if the great depression comes, I still want to be able to, to, pull out that 4% plus inflation of the original amount I have. And, you know, I think, I think I'd start feeling a little more comfortable pulling out a little bit extra one, 2% more than inflation extra, like 15 to 20 years out. If my portfolio had hit that like upper half or upper third of projections. So if I, if I followed the 4% plus inflation rule and I found myself pulling out like I don't know, like less than 2% or like less than 2.5% of my overall portfolio, I would be tempted to start buying some luxuries at that point. But truth be told, I don't, I'm not as confident on just how, how much fun we could have at that point. I've more tried to focus on proofing the 4% rule. And lately I've been thinking about, there's a lot and, and the financial independence, early financial independence crowd has been on this kick forever saying like, there is a ton of freedom to be found in spending discipline. And it's like a weird it's kind of counterintuitive, but it's like, it kind of, it kind of speaks to my rural Canada roots where it's like, look, man, if you, if you own your own property or have access to like a low rent area, part of the country, or you're willing to do some geographic arbitrage, there is just so much joy to be had from free time and nature. And it's, it's, it's not, I don't think too many people would describe me as like a hippie or woo woo or, or, or that sort of world of, of personal, personal enjoyment and personal growth. I, I don't think I would be put in that bucket very often, but the truth is that's where I've more focused is like, if you had to make spending cuts, could you still get 99.8% of the quality of life? And I think a person could, especially if you have a young family, I really feel that like, I don't know, you'd have more experience in this than me, Cornell, but I really feel like your joy probably doesn't come from that like extra 20% spending you could do. Yeah, I think that's true. There's so much variability too in the the activities that you can do, right? It's like you can sign your kids up to hockey, which would be a more expensive option, or you can go, hey guys, we're going to go on a weekly hike and we're going to go mountain biking. And you know, there's all these other things where you don't really feel like you're sacrificing joy or happiness at all by doing these things, even though they actually cost substantially less. Uh, I have found that to be very interesting. You know what I mean? Because it's like on the one, like even something like, like I'm a mountain biker. So that's kind of where I come from, right? It's like, okay, once you've got your bike, 
it's not that expensive of a hobby because the trails are typically free. But then exactly. you could, but then you could also take it. Like I was speaking to a friend of my mine who's also fly, and he's like, "Oh well," but then you could. He, then he tells me you could travel around the world and compete in mountain biking races and things like that, which is true. So it is fascinating how you can take some of these low cost things or even free things like running as a sport is very inexpensive. Sure, but you could be like, "Hey, I want to." compete in these Ironman triathlons and travel the world doing that. So I, I do find your point fascinating about and how it is very valuable to be able to get joy from not having to take it to that level where you have to travel the world and do these really expensive things with it, where you get just as much pleasure or a very similar amount by just like, hey, we're just going to go run locally somewhere, but I'm going to do it with friends and family or my kids. And that's actually going to give me an equivalent amount of joy than me being this globe trotter running around the right. world. Yeah. Not to criticize anyone that does that really. No, it's no, just, it's, but it just speaks to your point about, I think what you said about getting joy from things that don't necessarily have to be extremely expensive either. Yeah, it's it's really just getting into some geeky economic psychology stuff about added utility, right? Mm, like yeah. that's what we're talking about here is like, how much more added utility would you get from being able to run in the Boston, assuming you're good enough to be able to run in the Boston Marathon? It's like, I don't know, maybe 1% more than like running with my friends and family or like going to, I don't know what the biggest, what's the biggest marathon. And I, I'm not a marathon runner as most people can probably tell, but (laughs) I don't know which is the best one in Canada, but like, let's say, let's say Vancouver's got the nicest one. I think most Canadians probably know somebody in the lower mainland area. So like if you either, you know, flew out there on a cheap flight or whatever, drove out there, if you, if you think that the price of driving is lower, stayed with a friend and ran in the Vancouver Marathon for, you know, a few percentage more than you would have paid to just stay at home and run in Ontario or Manitoba or whatever the case is. I just feel like there's, it's not all or nothing. And I, I think that people like overestimate what that extra 20%, like, let's say that scenario we were just talking about 20 years into my retirement, I know I can spend a little more. I always say, like, if I'm just thinking about the airplane example as the metaphor, where it's like economy, premium economy, business first. Yeah, man, I'm not going to lie. Premium economy is nice, especially on a long flight. It does add to my quality of life substantially for like 10 hours. But ultimately, at the end of the day, unless you're like six, seven or something like this, it's 10 hours. Like it sucks, but I don't know. You suck it up. Overall, if there's a pie chart of my entire year, would that extra thousand dollars or like whatever the bump up was, would that actually contribute to my happiness all that much over the course of the year? Probably not. Like probably 36 hours after that flight, I've used up any extra utility. Like there's no more added utility to my life from that purchase. I think it's, I think if I were the average person, I had a limited amount of time to read into this 4% stuff. I would focus more on the like shoring up the 4% as opposed to like 20 years down the road, I've got lots of money. Let's figure out if how much of it I can spend. Maybe that's just because that's where I'm at. So I'm biased, obviously. Maybe it with when I'm, hopefully when I'm 70 years old, I will have this massive portfolio that I can, I don't know, like they can name a library after me or something like this. I don't know what I'll do. We'll see. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. There are so many opinions on how to invest your money today, but it can be hard to find credible voices to rely on in the world of finance and investing. One resource that I turn to every week is the ETF Market Insights YouTube channel led by today's episode sponsor, BMO ETFs. Market Insights brings in industry experts and the weekly episodes cover the hottest themes like inflation, infrastructure, healthcare, and more. Tuning in helps me stay up to date on what's happening so I can be a smarter investor. And you can also submit your own ETF questions to be answered on the show. So do yourself a favor and subscribe on YouTube to ETF Market Insights or visit ETFMarketInsights.com so you can be notified when future episodes go live. And now back to the show. It is interesting how you brought up the point about not that much research being done about these two phases that we see here. Because we hear about the diminishing returns, the first five years especially, and then 10 years if you want to be a bit more conservative. So that almost seems like phase one of financial independence. Try not to deplete it prematurely. There's a high risk. But then phase two seems to be after that, where it's like, okay, it sounds inefficient to just do the status quo at that point, because you're just going to end up with a giant portfolio, most likely. 
And so now you have to kind of rethink of, okay, how are we going to change our spending now? Because the 4% rule might have served us well the first, let's say, 10 years of FI. But now the opportunity cost is getting too significant because, yeah, you don't want to just end up with a giant portfolio when you're dead and just give this you know inheritance away. You can probably do a lot more good giving away some of it now and, and using it now. So uh, yeah, it, it is a very interesting thought exercise. It's like this never stops <laughs> trying to figure yeah. all this out. <laughs> And, and I will say, Cornell, one of the other, in terms of what you're saying, I tend to bias this and think from an early financial independence standpoint, but obviously if you're 60, 65, this math is just different. And I would probably be more prepared to be more aggressive in terms of giving money to loved ones and seeing it benefit them earlier in life. Cause it's, I see this all the time and I shake my head and you guys have talked about it. The idea of like, you've let this money sit in an account. Usually, unfortunately, it's in like a super cautious investment, statistically speaking. And then rather than give it to loved ones at a time in their life when they could really use it to pay down high interest debt or invest in a very aggressive way in the stock market because they have this long horizon, it just sat there and you never got to see the benefit of it. So I see where you're coming from with that. And I think if you're 80, your cost calculation, your opportunity cost calculations change, right? Because you're not going to have to battle the Great Depression years for that long if you're 90 or 95, especially, again, you start looking at mortality tables, like maybe, you know, someone who has like great family health is in impeccable condition. Maybe they're thinking about it a little bit more, but, but yeah, the only other thing I wanted to talk about in regards to how I personally set this up Cornell and where I've seen the research and it's it's more on those first 10 years is, you know, if we're talking about bucket strategies and you and I have talked about bucket strategies a little bit, and maybe we can go more into depth yeah. in terms of like cash cushion and yield. My next question, actually, yeah. So let's for sure, let's get into that because that's a very practical, hands-on way of actually managing this risk, this volatility. Yeah, so exactly. So I guess I basically say that I'm bucket strategy agnostic at this point. And, and what I mean by that is, as more people are retiring at various ages, there's been a debate happening. And I think there's there's two levels to the debate. There's the math level and there's the psychology, actual real life level. And I think it's you have to take both of those into consideration because most people don't operate on the math level. The math level says that this bucket stuff is way overrated. Probably you won't do it right. There's an element, depending what bucket strategy you're referring to, there's an element of market timing involved. It doesn't actually affect the worst case scenario that much because again, if in real returns, you're not just looking at a three-year cash cushion, you're looking at like 10, 12 years of where the market would be underwater in real terms. So it's not going to actually matter that much when you look at like cushioning yourself from worst case scenario, mathematically speaking. But from a psychology standpoint, I know that there's huge value because I've seen it. And when I create plans for people, and even when I think about it, even I'm aware of this and I still have it in my head, the idea of having a one-year, two-year cash cushion where you've got, say, a 12-month and an 18-month GIC and then whatever, it depends on your percentage of your budget, but a, a couple paychecks or three paychecks worth in a high-interest savings account, I see the psychological benefit to this. And then maybe having like another three, four years. And, and I go into depth in this in my course, whether you want to think about it in terms of buckets or overall asset allocation, there's not much difference between saying a 75-25 portfolio, equities to bonds, and oh, no, no, you got to have buckets. And one bucket is 20 years and the other bucket is for five years. And this bucket is going to be in fixed income products and cash. And this bucket is going to be in equities. And it's like, well, right, that's actually just an 80-20 portfolio then. Right. It's exactly the same thing, actually. So if that, if, if putting them in those buckets and using graphic organizers, if that makes you feel good and handle risk better, then there's value to it. There's absolutely value to it and you should use it. On the other hand, from like a pure mass standpoint, if I just pick the all-in-one fund that I want and I keep six months in cash and I put everything else in the 80-20 all-in-one across all my accounts, that's not a bad way to go either. Like, I don't think you're going to end up materially different. The research I've read, and, and there was a great debate between Karsten and uh, Retirement Manifesto. Fritz is his like name he goes by. I can't remember his full name. So Fritz, I apologize for that. But they had a great back and forth on, on bucket strategies versus just like super simple asset allocation strategies. 
about the only thing I've seen that moves the needle at all. And this is like, again, super geeky stuff for you guys that are listening right now. The only thing I've seen that moves the needle in terms of asset allocation and bucket strategies is what they call a glide path. And Wade Fowles written about this quite a lot. Karsten has. And even this is like, we're talking like, it's only going to really matter in like 5% of scenarios. But it does, it does actually add to the uh, resilience of the 4%. And what that is, is you're strategically, when you first retire, and again, this is all about managing that first 10 years. When you first retire, you're going to have a little more, somewhere between probably 25 and 40% of your portfolio in fixed income. And then as you, as you get into retirement, you scale up in terms of portfolio risk to 100% stocks. And this mathematically is actually the best answer. And it's also completely counter to what every financial advisor actually plans. Not every, but many financial advisors actually plan for their clients because basically it's counterintuitive to the idea of when you want risk in your life. But again, if you just think about it from the standpoint of it's really that first 10 years that matter the most. And if you can just get out of those first 10 years, because when I say those first 10 years, it's all about managing the risk that you're retiring at the worst possible time. And that's what this whole ball game is. Whether you want to look at the valuation of equities, whether you want to look at glide paths, it's all about managing that worst case scenario where you're retiring when stocks are at their peak and you're about to go on a 12-year adventure where they're low. And, and inflation might be there as well. That's your worst case scenario. So it's all about managing that and using a glide path. And we can do that with all in one ETFs, right? Where we say, you know, oh, I'm going to be in a 60 40. And then in five years, I'll move 80 20. In 10 years, I'm going to move into 100% equities with, I don't know, six months spending cash in a high interest savings account. That would be mathematically how I would do it. But again, it's, there's nothing wrong with if you want to put it in buckets. It's just that when you start to overlay your buckets over top of your RSP and TFSA and non-registered, and you and I talked about this last year at the summit, Cornell, that starts to get really complicated <clears throat> when you're battling tax efficiency versus managing investment risk and you're playing around with ETFs and what's where are we going to get hit with the extra dividend tax withholding taxes? And that I find the danger there is it just loses so many people get lost in the weeds. So I really think there's a value to saying like, here's where I want my asset allocation to be. I'm just going to put it in all my accounts. I'm going to take the very, very small tax hit and I'm not going to worry about buckets. And then you mentioned a few times 10 year being that sort of danger zone for lack of a better word, when it comes to sequence risk. A lot of the other interviews I've done and articles we see online, more often I would say we hear about five years being that dangerous period when it comes to sequence risk. But 10 years, is, I've, I've heard as well, but five seems to be kind of the more, the one I see mentioned more often. What is, I assume you've looked into this and analyzed this, what is that increase to risk of only looking at your first five years in retirement sequence risk versus looking at the 10 year? Why have you decided to use 10 years as sort of your rule, so to speak, or your measuring stick as opposed to using the five? Yeah. It's mostly just what I've read from Wade Faub is based on the 10 year sequence of return risk, to be honest. So that's kind of just the default in my brain. Mm -hmm. But you're right, Cornell. It, it really is the first five years dictates, which is again why. I personally, my geeky self found it worth it to read through a lot of Karsten's research on looking at how valuations actually affect the probability of your 4% rule working and just how horrible the valuations were in the year prior to the only few times where the 4% rule, depending on a bunch of other variables in Canada versus the USA and all this other stuff, the few percent times in like over the last 200 years or whatever, where you would have needed like a 3.8 or a 3.5% rule if you had like 50 year retirement. You're right. It, and that's why that stock market valuation tends to come into play a little bit. But I think honestly, the most elegant solution to this, the kind of in, from what I've been able to tell for most people, now, if you're forced to quit working, which is a not insignificant number of people, then this doesn't work. But I really think shifting down to part-time work for like five years and withdrawing like two to 3% of your portfolio. So you get yourself used to this idea of I'm now in retirement. Because what we haven't even gotten into here, Cornell, is that most retirees with actual investable assets don't even come close to spending them. The vast majority don't. I put some stats in the course. It's crazy. It's crazy. Most of them are from the US, but I think they're probably applicable here in Canada as well. 
the vast majority of people that have significant, like over a hundred thousand dollars of investable assets, never spend it in, in retirement. They end up spending like 25% or less. And so just so you know, that's probably about what you're going to be dealing with here. So you and I are talking about cutting off any probability of we retire right before the Great Depression. But the far more likely is that you're retiring in a completely average normal year where the market is up or down by 15%. In other words, the other thing I wanted to look at for that Cornell to manage this risk is instead of buckets, really, really think this might have been one of the most interesting things of the research I did, which was Canadians need to start looking at annuities. I really believe this. As a guy with a teacher's pension, I can say this uh, from a persistent privilege, obviously, that I'm aware of and I'm thankful for. And I know not everybody or not most people have. But you can do something super simple that is akin to your bucket strategy and cash strategy all rolled into one. As long as you don't mind the trade-off of not being able to pass along mathematically the most money to your inheritors. You can take 20 to 30% of your portfolio, buy an annuity. Annuity rates right now are way better than they were three years ago. And then just put your money all in equities. And then you know that you have a certain amount of money coming in. You're going to get a a much better return than you would in traditional, assuming interest rates don't go through the roof, I guess. But historically, you would have got a much better return with annuities and getting that set amount of money coming in versus handling all these buckets every year and going back and forth and trying to rebalance. and then. Actually, some bucket strategies have you market timing where they're going to say, hey, get two years worth so that, you know, if it's a garden variety recession, it'll only last for 18 months and then you'll be back in the red. But then what happens if it's three years now, what you have in that situation is you have someone who was initially very cautious, who has been hearing awful news headlines for three full years about how the world is going to hell and the stock market screws everyone and it's all bad. And they've used up their safety cushion and they're now 100% in equities or whatever the case, or 90% in equities, depending on that middle bucket. And that's when people make awful decisions. That's the exact scenario where people say, I don't know about all this. I don't trust anything. I'm out. I'm selling everything. And of course, they sell right before the market picks up again. And so, again, this is allowing for psychology as well as mathematical reasoning. And my second last question, in terms of your own portfolio, what investments do you buy for your own investment portfolio and what accounts do you put them in as well, just from the whole tax efficiency standpoint? I'm boring in this way. I'm just a, a vanilla index investor. I know you and I talked at the summit, Cornell, about like precisely what ETFs. At that time, my portfolio was actually a little slightly more complicated just because I was an expat. Now I'm yeah. a Canadian resident again, as of a couple months ago. And so I'm back under the Canadian taxation rules. For me personally, not having a corporate investment account, there's no added benefit to the Horizons ETFs that I was using Mm. that basically, long story short, took dividends and turned them into capital gains, as odd as that sounds. And you can do a little more research on that if you want to know what I'm talking about. They're called total return ETFs. I was using those these days. I just have literally Canadian equities, everything else equities, bonds. That's it. And uh, there is an interesting debate to be had at this point. You and I had talked a little bit about where to put your bond, your fixed income yes. allocation. And again, this is where it gets tricky. And so for, I would say over 90, 95% of retirees that I've talked to, I just end up saying, okay, I'm going to say a few words here and you tell me if they're scary. And I get into asset allocation and layering the buckets over RSPs and they go, yeah, scary. I'm out. I don't want to talk to you anymore. And I go, okay. All in one ETF across all accounts. Mm-hmm. Just do it. It's not worth the sacrifice for you. Now, the funny part is that 5% are probably ones listening to this podcast. <laughs> so yeah. they want to optimize, right? And so there's an interesting, what you have to basically do is sit down because we used to say, hey, you got to leave something outside of the, the tax umbrella, right? I call the, the, the registered tax umbrella. So we got our RSP or TFSA. These days, maybe you get creative with the, the, the home savings account. You got those, that's your tax umbrella. They get sheltered from the tax man. But then there's, you got to leave something out in the rain. If you're one of those like 5% of Canadians that have maxed out the TFSA and RSP, right? And so what do you leave out in the rain? What's going to get soaked by the tax man? And the answer usually was, okay, fixed income. It's not earning anything anyway. So who cares about these tax rates? It's, it's earning me less than 2%. Put it out there in the rain. I want to keep my dividends and capital gains protected. 
But these days there's an interesting debate because all of a sudden now your, your fixed income is up to 5% or over. Yeah. And so now you start looking at, okay, my Canadian dividend stocks or just Canadian, let's call it my Canadian index fund that generates 3.2% dividends for me. My capital gains, depending on where my marginal tax rate is, my dividends might not get taxed at all. In fact, it might be a negative tax rate, depending on how frugal we like to live and how much we're generating from our portfolio. And the capital gains are, are 50% of our marginal rate. So they're pretty advantageous. Whereas the 5% gain is going to be interest on your fixed income, which will be taxed at 100% of your marginal rate. So especially once you start getting up into those upper, upper tiers, if you're earning, you know, over $90,000, a year in income, you've got to really look at now your dividend stocks are going to have to return twice as much as your, your, your fixed income in order to put the same after tax in your pocket. So for me, I, I'm not worried about that at this point in my life. I also have a fair amount of my net worth in, like you say, Cornell, various corporate ventures. So that I'd rather put my energy and brain space into that. But if you are totally trying to optimize what to leave out in the tax ring, you have to figure out how your marginal tax rate. And I think it's worth it actually to break it down. If you have a fair amount of assets, like if you have, I don't know, over a half million in assets, or you've maxed out your RSP and PFSA and you have like, over $100,000 in that non-registered account where the tax difference is going to make, you know, a fair amount of difference for you. So yeah, that's my roundabout way of saying I'm a super lazy investor. If you don't want to be like me, here's the variables you can, you should consider. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. All right. I want to give a big shout out to Passive for sponsoring this episode. They are free to use and are literally the number one tool that I consistently use to manage all my investments. If you've been investing for any period of time, you know how important rebalancing your portfolio is as that's what allows you to consistently buy low and sell high with your investments as well as ensure that you aren't taking on any additional unnecessary risk. Now, as critical as rebalancing your portfolio is, it's actually a manual an annoying labor-intensive process as to do it correctly, you have to log into each of your household's investment accounts and do manual data entry on a spreadsheet to figure out how much to buy of each investment every single time that you have money to invest. And there's always the chance that you make a mistake and miscalculate something when doing it yourself on a spreadsheet. So these days, when I have money to invest, I simply log into Passive, I immediately see what I'm holding too much and too little of in my portfolio, and Passive automatically calculates how much I need to buy of each ETF to get me back to my target across all of my household's accounts. Then in a couple of clicks, I can have Passive buy the investments that I'm holding too little of across all my and my wife's accounts without me having to log in and out of each account to manually do the trades myself. I'm also able to see how my entire household's investment portfolio is doing across all our accounts in just a mouse click instead of manually having to add everything up across all my accounts. So they have a free account that you can use to try them out. And if you are a Quest Trade user like me, you also get their premium account for free. So it's a complete no-brainer. And I've personally been using them for years at this point. So I can definitely vouch for them as they have literally become my number one favorite tool for managing my investments. They saved me many dozens of hours when I'm managing and optimizing my portfolio. So definitely check them out. They are a fantastic Canadian company and you can get your free account by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. Again, that's buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. And now back to the show. And for all the listeners, if that sounds like maybe overwhelming a bit, what I suggest and what I do personally is I have my account run these scenarios for us. So if you have enough assets where your RSP TFSAs are maxed out and now you're dealing with this new, more complicated animal of not having to also invest in your taxable account, there's so many variables that come into play when it comes to taxation. And then the taxation changes to an extent every year as well because you know different tax rule policies, things of that nature, sometimes more than others, but it's this moving kind of thing that you're trying to solve for. And so what I do now, what I recommend to others is, look, if you're at that level where your portfolio is large enough or your TFSA and RSP is maxed out and now you're investing in the taxable accounts, okay, so you've got an, enough money. You're not like trying to save a, a dollar here, dollar there. Now we're dealing with some serious money. So it does make sense at that point, I would say to get an accountant who does this for a living and they can run different scenarios for you. Say, okay, look, if you did it this way, 
here's the attacks implications of that. If you did it this other way, like what Kyle's talking about, then this is how you're going to be impacted. And then you can make a rational decision based on your own specific situation. So I would argue, you know, you don't want to follow just some sort of these blanket rules of thumb that maybe you read in a blog post somewhere, because maybe you have that little caveat there with your situation that actually makes things very, very different. One answer might be one way, but then if you, like let's say with government benefits, for example, right? If you get those, that can drastically impact where you should keep your, get your Canadian dividends, yep, for example, absolutely. right? Because now you might get more clawbacks because of the gross up. Again, it gets more complicated, but these things, this is another reason why I, I do strong suggest that once you're at that point in your life, it, it does make sense to get some more professional one-on-one help as opposed to just being like, okay, here's general advice I read on a blog post somewhere. Let's just follow that and assume it's good for my situation exactly because there's a chance that it isn't. And that decision alone could cost you thousands of dollars. Like it's, it's significant numbers at that point. So anyways, I'll get yeah. off my pedestal, but I, I just didn't no, want no. to say that because I struggled I with that mentally. And eventually I'm just like, look, Cornette. and I'm like, you know, I'm a frugal guy, DIY guy. So I'm like, I'll yeah. figure this out. I'll figure this out. Yeah, yeah. And eventually it's like, come on, man, just pay the money for the account. They do this for a living. You're trying to hit something that changes every year anyway. Just have them do these scenarios for you. And it saved me so much stress and headache. And probably notice the lack of gray hairs. That's probably that, part of it. If you're watching there you this go, video. there you go. Yeah, <laughs> I should know, Cornell. In my course, I actually and I go. I take the approach of like the lowest, the lowest fruit. Pick the lowest fruit first. Yes. Here's here's where you're going to get most of the benefits, and then I show if you drill down. And I do actually provide like various case studies. Here's a person with three quarters of a million in retirement at sixty five. Here's a person with a million at fifty five. Here's here's someone who just has a TFSA and RSP to worry about, which is most people. Here's someone who retired early and because they retired early, they didn't have a lot of room in their registered account. So they have a substantial non-registered account. And I illustrate the differences that would make for each person. But, and maybe you can read into that, like you say, everyone's unique. So maybe you can read into whether it's OAS clawback or in your case, Cornell specifically, you're looking at the, the Canadian child tax benefit and you can maybe see some commonalities and at least direct your fee-only advisor or accountant to explore a very specific or, or try and do it yourself if, if you feel so inclined to spend a few hours doing that. But I, I just want to point out that I do provide some real life exemplars of how that would look. Yeah. And I, I do, I did take Kyle's course, by the way, and I do love how he did that, where he's got different scenarios that you may be in and you get to choose the one that is most applicable to you. I found that to be really, really valuable because there's so much information out there and it's easy, I think, to get into this sort of information overload paralysis analysis just because of the complexity of our tax system with the thousands of investments you could be putting your money into how do you decide so yeah I, I did think that was a really really awesome part in your course and and i think too i mean even if you get an account to use it like i took house course i also have an accountant because just having some background knowledge about those elements now lets you have those more intelligent conversations with Absolutely. your accountant and ask them the right things and say hey can you like you must have a really, really good accountant if, if he's like, hey, let's run five scenarios. Like that's really impressive. Yeah. Whereas I, you know, instead you can approach them and say, hey, listen, we're debating between option X and Y. Here's why. Can yeah. you run these in your program and tell us what you think? So again, because you understand it better, you're able to have these conversations and now you can be more strategic with your account as well. So whether you're pure DIY or not, I think that's, that's something important. So Kyle, speaking of your course, tell us a bit more about the work that you do. Tell us more about the retirement course. I think you did a great job. I'm so happy that you did it specifically for Canadians and not just like, oh, the US market's bigger. So let's just do another one. Because sometimes you see these like good Canadian authors and they publish a thing that you, a book that you know is like tailored to the US just because it's a bigger market. So I'm glad you kind of, you, you were you were loyal to us Canadian folk here and, and you made it specifically for us Canadians. And, and I know you keep updating it as well as new information comes out, as things change. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about that, where you get it. And, and thanks for doing that. I think it's a really good service you gave to the Canadian, the Canadian public for sure. Yeah, I'm just, I want to be upfront in saying like, I saw there was a need for it and I really do want to help people, but I'm also going to make money on it. I don't want to pretend I'm this altruistic guy who just put, put it out there that, uh, uh, now I will say the way I make money on it is I'm going to charge it up front. And right now, Cornell, it's $500. And I say that's less than half the price of a university course going forward. I don't know that if I will, I know there's courses out there that talk about just investing that are charging like 2000, $5,000 a pop. Uh, I don't have any plans to go up to 2000, but, uh, I may look in the future about increasing the price. But that said, what I tell people all the time is look, 
all cards on table. I'm not trying to hide it. I'm not trying to hide anything in uh, percentage fees, subscriptions where I'm trying to get on your credit card and just hide, hide there in your, your, with your streaming services and take 20 bucks every month from you forever. It's right up front. Here's the cost. I'm so confident that the value of this course will be there for you that I'll give you your money back. If you just, you look at it and you're like, yep, this uh, just didn't answer my questions. I want my money back. I'll say, yeah, no problem. Here's your money back. Because I, I don't believe that, that that person's questions will not be answered by this course. And so to backtrack, a couple of years ago, I was looking around and I've been writing about personal finance and, and talking to you for like 15 years, Cornell, about what, yeah. what investors of all ages should be doing and you know tax breaks and maybe how to optimize some rewards points and stuff like that. And I came, my parents were looking at retirement and they were right in this gray zone of maybe taking on some part-time work and making decisions about CPP and OAS. And in my mom's case, looking at a nurse's pension, my dad was a private solopreneur his whole life. So he didn't, he didn't have any pension and trying to sort out these variables. And I realized, man, retirement planning is way harder yeah. than investment planning is. It's like not even close. There's so many variables. And just around the idea of like CPP and OAS, there's so many variables that, and nobody understands them. And there are some good books. And I like to think I read them all because I'll tell you this year of my life, I read dozens of books and I read hundreds of articles by guys like Karsten and Wade Fow and Fred Vitis and, you know, Moshmaleski in Canada. I read all the, these guys had written on things like annuities, things like timing of CPP. And I, I really wanted to break it, break it down into a format that most Canadians could understand and that they could feel empowered by. Cause every Canadian I talk to that, that they're looking at this, they really have emperor has no clothes syndrome. And they want to say like, oh yeah, I have a basic idea of what it'll look like. And I'm like, okay, well, let's dive into that. What will day one look like? What will your budget be day one of retirement? And they just pause and go, well, how much do I have saved? And I go, how much do you have saved? You tell them, why am I telling you how much you have saved? Like, I don't know what you have saved. And, uh, and they really have no way to answer, right? But you don't know what you don't know. And people are really busy and they haven't planned all this out. So I thought, look, for people with my parents in mind, I was like, I want to write a resource. And I just unfortunately was forced to think about how to educate people online and communicate online for the last two years as a high school personal finance teacher during the pandemic. And I was like, if I can teach teenagers about this stuff, there has to be a way where I can teach these super motivated. I don't buy the argument that Canada's 45 to 60 year olds aren't capable of going online and like doing two clicks mm -hmm. because like, I honestly believe the course is that easy to navigate. It is, I've got a thing you can print out. I've got a how-to video we kicked the course off with. I've, I've ran this thing and troubleshot this thing. I had my parents take it. I've had a whole lot of family and friends go through it. Now, one of them has said, I didn't know where to click. Uh, I couldn't figure it out. They all know where to click. And the great thing about the online course, Cornell, is as opposed to a book, is that if something changes, I change the course in 15 seconds. And now I can say, actually, the OAS clawback is this now. Or your OAS payment increased over the last two years to this. And I don't have to re-release the book. I don't have to go to a printer and I don't need to force you to the bookstore and buy another thing. If you want to come back to something, you can come back to something in five years and know that I've updated it for the current environment and that it's Canadian specific. And I think that makes it way different than anything else on the market right now. For sure. Can you speak a bit about if somebody has a question as they're going through it? That's one area that I haven't tried in your course yet. What's the whole process for that? Yeah. So Thinkific is the platform and they, I can tell you right now, I don't know why every university in Canada is not using Thinkific as opposed to the truly awful online learning environments that a lot of universities are still using. Like as a, like Google Classroom would be close, but I really just like in terms of self-paced learning, Thinkific has done uh, a lot of really good work. And one of the areas is they have this this little section called communities. And I've got it set up so that if you enroll in my course, you're automatically set up in the four steps to worry-free retirement learning community. And a learning community is kind of a fancy description. I call it an online classroom. It's basically a Facebook group. It even looks like Facebook, but only people within the course can see it. And so what I find is that uh, much like in, in a high school class, there's like one or two brave students that I will be depending on to ask the questions that everyone is thinking, but no one wants to ask. 
So something like I had one person the other day say one of the people I was actually one my grade, my grade two, three teacher, actually, who I was still kind of in touch with as a, a family friend. And she said, well, I'll look the course over and give you some feedback if you want. So I, I gave her a, a, a login and she said, yeah, I was looking at this community, but I, I wasn't sure. I had a question on bridge benefits in my pension. And I, I thought, oh, that's a dumb question. I don't want. And I was like, no, that's a great question. One, I'm going to add a note to the course about it. But two, if I had that in the classroom, I guarantee you there are police officers, nurses, teachers, civil servants of various kinds that are sitting there with defined benefit pensions that are trying to weigh the pros and cons of retiring at any point between the ages of like 53 and 65. And that bridging benefit is vitally important to them. We're talking like $1,000 a month, the difference for these people. And now if if you would ask that question in this classroom, all those people could benefit from reading the answer. And I don't need to know any personal information about you. I don't need to know how much money you have. I don't even need to know your real name if you don't want to give it to me. I just need to know that you're a real person with a real question. And then everyone else can benefit from you asking that. So that's another pretty cool aspect of the course. And uh, that's where I'll be answering questions. Awesome. Okay, that's great, Carl. Thanks. So what's the... I'm going to put the link on the show notes for the episode as well. But for anybody just listening now, can you give us the, the link to go to for anybody that wants to check it out? Yeah, so it's worryfreeretire.com or .ca will bring you there too. Worry free retire. And I got one more favor to ask of your listeners, Cornell, because as I identified earlier, it's probably a self-selecting group that listen to this podcast. Probably. Yeah. And I'm gonna say <laughs> that they're like, this podcast probably has like 80% of the people in Canada that know what a management expense ratio is. <laughs> like they're they're educated people. And I really think that they're gonna know the value of this course when they look at it. When they just look at my homepage and they see some of the the examples I've given, maybe they read a couple things I've written over the years, they're going to say, you know what? This guy was up front, 500 bucks. That seems like a good value for the course. Worst case scenario, I'll take a look and I'll ask for my money back. Mm-hmm. But they're going to give it a chance because they understand that like, if you have, say, $300,000 in investable assets that you're trying to figure out what to do with as you enter retirement. If you have that in just mutual funds in Canada and you're paying 2.5% on that, you're looking at $7,500 a year just in management expense ratio fees on your mutual funds. You're going to save that. You're going to save at least 7,000 of that just by following the strategies that you've laid out on this podcast, but that I go into in the course as well. So just that alone is going to pay more than pay for the course in the first year. But most people have no idea about this. So if I could ask your audience, if you could just talk to one or two people who are, you know, a Canadian looking for something Canadian spe- specific, looking they're between the ages of, you know, 40 and 70, maybe looking at retirement in the next 10, 15 years, or even two years, if, if that's the case, mention it to them. Do me a favor. I thank you personally. I'm trying to compete with the marketing budgets here of like major big banks, companies that have like billions of dollars to throw at it. So I think a personal recommendation from you in terms of just saying, hey, there's this weird guy, Kyle Prevo, <laughs> says he spent a, a year of his life reading retirement books. Maybe you want to check out his course. Awesome. Even for people that are like, I'm in the young FI space as well. And I found it really helpful as well, because again, it is specifically for Canadians and tackling that retirement side. And so it is nice to be able to see Kyle's research on this, but also, I mean, you and I have been involved in the summit for years now interviewing these different experts you used to have your podcast as well and so you've picked up this knowledge from other individuals and others that you've interviewed specifically for this course and so i like how it's not just your opinion like oh here's what kyle thinks just another person on the internet giving an opinion no Kyle's actually legitimately knowledgeable about this which i think you've shown just by your the quality of your answers in this interview but also i just i've known kyle for years and i know he knows it, but also it's other experts that he has interviewed and sh- you eventually start to pick up certain patterns and things that they recommend and you notice, okay, this seems to be the most commonly recommended approach and way to look at it. So I'm going to include that in the course. And so I I do like that as well, how it's not just your brain. It's also others that you have learned from over the years. And that's all in there. So it's great. Like I said, I I was part of the the pilot to test it out and to go through it all and make suggestions and comments. And I I love what you've done. And I'm glad somebody did this for Canadians. So yeah, happy to help. I'm Kyle's not paying me to say this. I'm just, I'm really want to help him out because I I think he did a great job and I got value out of it. And I think a lot of Canadians will as well. So yeah, thank you, Kyle. Again, it's worryfreeretire.com is the site. And Kyle, thanks so much for coming on. Much appreciated. Thank you, Cornell. Awesome. Thanks, Kyle. Bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please share it with someone that you think may find it useful. 
And of course, leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is always super appreciated as well. I'd like to end with a big thanks to two of our sponsors who, apart from my investing course, literally keep the entire Build Wealth Canada podcast and website free for you. Our first sponsor is BMO ETFs. Do you know why asset allocation ETFs have become so popular? Asset allocation explains over 90% of the variation in a portfolio's quarterly returns. So it's no wonder Canadian investors are turning to these ETFs. Today's sponsor, BMO ETFs, offers these innovative all-in-one solutions with the BMO All Equity ETF, ZEQT, BMO Growth ETF, ZGRO, BMO Balanced ETF, ZBAL, BMO Conservative ETF, ZCON, and more. BMO developed these to help provide investors with ETFs that offer broad diversification, and they're also low-cost and simple to use. These ETFs invest in a number of underlying index-based ETFs and are rebalanced automatically back to your set asset allocation or mix of stocks and bonds. They offer a hands-free approach to investing that is built on disciplined weights to provide exposure to different geographies and sectors all in one solution. BMO actually offers eight asset allocation ETFs, and you can learn more at BMOETFs.com. I'd also like to thank Passive, the investing tool that I use for my entire investment portfolio. You can get your free account in Passive over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. And you can see my portfolio and what ETFs I buy within Passive over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash portfolio. Passive is literally the number one tool that I consistently use to manage all my investments as it lets me immediately see what I'm holding too much and too little of in my portfolio. And it automatically calculates how much I need to buy of each ETF to get me back to my target asset allocation across all my household's accounts. Then if I want, in a couple of clicks, I can have passive buy the investments that I'm holding too little of across all my and my wife's accounts without me having to log in and out of each account to manually do the trades myself. My other favorite feature is to be able to see the performance of my entire household's investment portfolio across all our accounts in just a mouse click instead of manually having to add everything up across all our accounts just to see how we're doing. They have a free account that you can use to try them out. And if you are a Questrade user like me, you can also get their premium account for free. So it's a complete no-brainer. And I've personally been using them for years at this point. So I can definitely vouch for them as they have literally become my number one favorite tool for managing my investments as they've saved me dozens of hours when managing and optimizing my investment portfolio. Definitely check them out. They are a fantastic Canadian company and you can get your free account by going to Build Wealth Canada. Dot ca slash free again that's build wealth ca slash free thanks for listening to the build wealth canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.